Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Quip, makers of refreshingly simple tools for proper dental care. Visit tryquip.com weekend to get 10% off your first refill. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about spectator sports, uh, basically games that we love to watch as opposed to play. Not necessarily completely opposed to playing them, but games that we primarily watch uh, to enjoy them. Uh, I know you are a uh, an esporter. Is that that's the proper term? <laughs> esporter, uh, perhaps. I guess let's call let's say esports fan. Uh, esports fan. Let's, I mean, that makes that. a lot more sense, honestly. Yeah, e- esports fan. It's like saying trekker. It's not not a great term, you know. Yeah, it's um. it, it's really not. And that, actually, I think <laughs> that entire attempt to rebrand the Star Trek fan community as trekkers was kind of misguided. It was bad. Um, yeah, and, and what's weird is it seems to have caught on, so it worked out in the end. But my God, did that seem like a defensive uh, reaction <laughs> from a community that it was every bit as. Uh, nerdy. It was like confirmed the worst stereotypes about like the nerdiness and sensitivity and self seriousness of uh, Star Trek fans. Fortunately, none of that is none of that ever goes on in esports. No, none of um, that. No pettiness. No, There's no e- fighting. Esports yeah. <laughs> entirely self aware. Um, definitely never takes itself too seriously, nor betrays any hint of an inferiority complex. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the, you know, spectatability is like definitely an obsession uh, with esports. And the interesting thing is that what makes a game a good spectator sport is really very different from necessarily what makes a good game. Sure. And I'll, I'll give you an example of something that got me thinking uh, about this. And what's funny is like you had this topic idea, but it, it totally meshes with um, some stuff that's been sort of on my radar this week. Yeah. So this past week, um, I had trouble sleeping one night. I sort of snapped awake at 2 a.m. And I opened Twitter, and I see Flash versus J-Dong uh, is trending. And I remember there was a Brood War semifinal uh, coming up. Ah. And seeing Flash versus J-Dong, um, like, right now, seeing Flash versus J-Dong like, as a top trending topic is a little bit like seeing, like, Ollie and Liston trending all of a sudden, like it's <laughs> it's it's a really weird thing, because um, yeah. this was this was like a storied Brood War rivalry. Um, J Dong was kind of like widely acknowledged to be the most like accomplished player in the world, and then Flash appeared on the scene and, and rapidly overtook him. But they're, they're playing Brood War, uh, which has had this sort of resurgence in Korea, and Brood War has almost no. Uh, spectator abilities whatsoever. Um, it's entirely sort of kludged together. Uh, StarCraft II was kind of, you know, the foundation for modern esports in a lot of ways. Very spectator friendly. A uh, ton amount of like options that the person spectating can bring up on the screen to uh, provide further information about the state of the game and the balance of power between the two players. In Brood War, meanwhile, the spectator has to be an invisible third player that is allied to both sides and has no units. Wow. Uh, and <laughs> has no ability to see anyone's resource count. Um, which basically means you have no insight into the state of the economic game. 
you can't bring up um, how many resources a given fight uh, cost a player. Uh, all you can do really is is watch the the individual skirmishes as they happen, which doesn't really tell you much at all about the state of the game. And the weird thing is, it's so much more gripping <laughs> because sure. it turns out that StarCraft Two gives you so much information that it makes it really easy once you've kind of like internalized how StarCraft Two works. You can sort of eyeball a few key stats and come up with a really good sense of who's going to win and who's going to lose, which means that a lot of good StarCraft games um, sort of start to lose momentum well before they end because you're sitting there and you kind of already know it's done. Uh, Dota 2 has a little bit of this problem, uh, although I've seen some slightly crazier swings in Dota 2. Brood War, none of that. You're just kind of winging it, and you're, you're just kind of watching stuff happen before your eyes. And it makes for a much more suspenseful game. Uh, and I don't know if, like, maybe it suffers a little bit from the side of, like, esports as an intellectual pursuit to appreciate, like, the beauty of the play and the, the strategy behind it. But it absolutely makes it a hell of a lot more gripping if you're watching a Brood War match and you can't immediately determine, like, okay, well, in that fight, uh, that basically sealed the game, and this might go on for 10 more minutes, but it's over. And you yeah. just know that. Uh, so it's interesting that, like, Brood War, as clunky as it is, uh, is sort of having this resurgence. And I think part of it is because it's actually very naive about the spectator experience <laughs> and lacks a lot of the, the uh, bells and whistles that later games sort of pioneered. That actually makes all the sense in the world to me. Uh, just as somebody who watches a lot of MMA these days, and actually just started watching, uh, like, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like, high-level tournaments and competitions where all you ever see is is the score in something like a, a jiu-jitsu tournament. All you ever see during MMA is what's happening. You know, sometimes they'll show you some of the stats, like, oh, significant strikes, this person has an advantage. And sometimes, you know, the, comment, uh, the commenters are giving you, obviously the you know the sort of blow by blow literally uh, of what's going on but they don't know who won any round you never know who won any given round until it goes if it goes to decision it's like you just have to kind of pay attention and really pay attention to the play by play and sort of put it all together in your head but like that really does add to the suspense of when you know when a fight goes all the way to the end it's it goes to the judges scorecards and nobody knows what they said until that that last moment and then somebody gets their hand raised it's it adds to the drama. It really, really does. And, you know, somebody who knows what they're doing, somebody who knows the sport will be able to understand, of course, you know, sort of who's kind of winning and who isn't. But I like that. I like not being bombarded by, like, the TMI <laughs> yeah. sort of in every second because it's like, pay attention to what's going on. Don't pay attention to the stats. Pay attention to what is happening, what what actions are being taken. That, that reads to me. It, it really does. Yeah, I think it's something that a lot of um, it's it's a balance that a lot of modern esports uh, struggle to find, because on the other hand, if you don't if you don't have the right spectator tools, it becomes really difficult to sort of uh, package and present a game. I think arguably maybe Overwatch is already starting to have this problem. I know that mm. Blizzard are investing a lot of resources in creating a really massive uh, Overwatch league. Yeah. But I'm not sure that Overwatch has great spectator-friendly systems uh, the way some some other first-person games have have sort of hacked the presentation uh, difficulties. Um, but at the same time, 
like if you if you put too much information on the screen um it can become almost a distraction or it makes it 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 almost it, it can deceive the it can deceive the viewer into thinking they maybe have more insight than than they really do uh, yeah. right like league of legends usually the the first thing you start to to learn to watch for as you as you get in the league of legends uh you watch the gold count who's leading on gold and as the game uh goes on uh bigger and bigger gold leads sort of become less significant right so like basically there's an inflation curve over the course of a league of legends game uh where at the start like a difference of a few hundred becomes very important at the end a difference of a few thousand is where things begin to matter um but what that doesn't tell you is how two team compositions really match up because like certain heroes actually kind of need to hit max level and their full item build before they really can kind of come into their own and uh, allow the chosen strategy to succeed, right? Like if somebody's going for a late game strategy, it can often look like they're losing and falling behind uh, <laughs> right up until it all turns around. And the gold number that will trick you into thinking it's a foregone conclusion. And what the gold number can't tell you is that, you know, the team with the lead is actually on a very strict timer to win this game while their advantage sure. still matters. Uh, and then things are going to get really dicey. And I think that's that's something that can be a real challenge. Uh, you know, both because that kind of leeches some of the drama out of the proceedings, but also perhaps gives uh, viewers a feeling that they know more than they do, and they start checking out before the uh, before the really <laughs> good stuff happens. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense as well. I I wonder if this is um, also somewhat unique to esports in terms of you know obviously there isn't. Uh, <sighs> It's fairly easy, I think, uh, for a person like me to, you know, watch enough basketball and kind of know what's going on or watch enough football or, and kind of know what's going on, at least within like a couple of games. But in something like League of Legends, in something like Dota, you know, the bigger sort of MOBAs, uh, th there's more inherent complexity to what the, the human players are kind of doing yeah. uh, versus, you know, what you would see on a field or a court necessarily. And that's that's... You know, and to my mind, one of the strengths, right, of, of this type of game, like it can be more complex because you, you have a, you know, a simulation going on. It doesn't have to adhere to certain real life, you know, uh, rules. Right. So that that does make a lot of sense. And that's 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 kind of cool. I I will tell you this. I have watched I have been attempting to watch at least a, a bunch of Overwatch um uh, professional play yeah uh, because overwatch is something at least a game that i that I kind of understand at least you know from some point of view from completely casually playing it i i kind of get the flow of play at least so i can i can you know i can wrap my head around it and enjoy sort of watching that uh, i still certainly don't uh understand it on any kind of strategic level other than you know the very very basics of i can i can get tactically why this person is doing this and this person is doing this and how the team is trying to move certain things around but uh, I'm getting there, Rob. I'm going to get there one day. I'm going to, one day, I'm even going to watch, I'm going to attempt to watch some MOBAs. I don't, I don't know when that day will happen, but it will happen. That's, that's a it, bold move. Uh, it for, will. For sure. Uh, how are you finding the Overwatch uh, spectator experience? 
I'm enjoying it. Uh, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. I, I'm certainly learning. I, the biggest thing for me, and this is how I, I learned MMA, you know, learned, you know, to watch MMA as, as sort of the first sport I ever watched that I never really participated in, even though I participated in, in sort of its component parts, you know, as a boxer and, and somewhat uh, with jujitsu. I've never competed in MMA, so watching it, you know, I started getting into it a couple of years ago. Uh, it's all about commentary, you know. Uh, it's about, you know, somebody For who's sure. going to really uh, intelligently break things down on a level where it's like, okay, I can see how this move, this action set up this action. I can see how this is good defense here, even though, you know, it looks to me like, I don't know, I didn't know any, any you know, proper Greco-Roman or freestyle uh, wrestling moves until literally like three weeks ago, so... Uh, I didn't know any of that stuff. So having somebody who could, you know, speak the language of wrestling as well as boxing, as well as Muay Thai, as well as, you know, jujitsu and, and other types of grappling, like that really made it all make sense to me within, you know, a few months of watching a lot of fights. So all about commentary. <laughs> Boy, that, that sure is true. And that's something that gets uh, overlooked a bit, right? Is that a lot of these games, you need a good uh, interlocutor basically. Yeah. And yeah. I think something that really sets esports back in some ways is a lot of times it feels like esports casters, um, esports analysts are not in dialogue with their audience per se, but they're in dialogue with the audience they think they have on Twitter and, and Reddit. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there are some casters, I think, who like get it, given the temptation of maybe leaning on meme humor a, a little too heavy and it becomes sure. a little too like self-referential and uh, frustrating. And that's really difficult though, because those people who are your most loyal audience eat that up. And that is kind of the language they speak. Right. But at the same time, you need to be able to like figure out when are good moments to pause and unpack really important game concepts and context for, for your audience. Like it's, it's one reason why um uh, artosis and tasteless uh the the starcraft I'm right casters. i'm writing this down <laughs> artosis <laughs> yeah and stasis uh tasteless sorry sorry gotcha yeah. uh are, are kind of considered the, the gold standard for a lot of starcraft casting uh, or, or at least were uh because sort of in the in the early days of starcraft 2 these were two very accomplished starcraft players uh they played a lot of brood war um, and they've been friends for a long time. And the knack they had was that they always had a good sense for when they could sort of take a little tangent into like a StarCraft history lesson mm. and sort of unpack for you why a player was doing, like why what you just saw was significant or uh, what sort of lineage a strategy that a player was running sort of had behind it, right? Like how did it develop over time and what was sort of the overriding theory for why this strategy would work. And done well, that's actually a very inviting thing because it lets spectators in on the secret to an extent and, and sure. sort of like lets them feel as smart as the professional analysts. Um, and where you start, where, where casting can really fail is when it starts getting really self-referential and becomes a lot of like veiled references to bad plays or bad strategies without any explanation. Yeah. Uh, and then it becomes like you're either in or you're out uh, of, you know, in and out of the joke, basically. Um, but, you know, even traditional sports fail this test all the time. It's just that <laughs> totally, <laughs> it's a less demanding test because no matter how disastrous Phil Sims is at calling a football game, 
everyone still knows the rules of football. Um, or and can so learn them th- pretty quickly. You know, it can can learn them in, inside of a couple of hours, at least understand the basic basics of the game for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, yeah, like there, there are some deadly, they're deadly crews, uh, calling any sport. Uh, but I think just in these sports, it's, it's much more critical because the knowledge level that you can presume is, is, uh, is so much lower and the knowledge level that's higher uh, that's needed is so much higher. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have heard good things about the sort of, um, uh, the Dota 2 sort of, uh, beginner streams I th- they call them something along yeah. those lines that actually really do sort of uh do a good job uh, i'm not saying this from experience i haven't really watched any i think I, I sort of tried to watch one once but it was with somebody who knew what was going on so it wasn't really that helpful it was more like okay i'm whatever i you know i don't under, under even understand enough of this at this point to fully engage with this at all uh but i've heard they're excellent and they actually are very very good at uh you know contextualizing things for you know, for beginners, for people who don't know what's going on, but understand, hey, this is a cool thing. Like, I've had this for a long time that I've sort of been like, I, I'm not, I don't have like a, an innate interest in a lot of esports, but I, I love sports. I love competition. I love that sort of play in in human life. So I think I probably should, uh, you know, get into at least some aspect of this and probably would really love it if I, if I had, you know, some more time to kind of dive in properly. And I think, I think what it's just going to take is me finding a commentator who kind of makes sense of things for me uh, and, you know, stick with them for a while and figure, figure a few things out. That's definitely part of it. I was also really lucky that when I was getting into StarCraft, it was right in the middle of a really storied rivalry uh, between these Mm. two players, DRG and Marine King. And each of them were, had very, very different styles, very different approaches to the game, uh, and it had achieved very different levels of success. And so Marine King Prime was always sort of the perpetual underdog, massively talented, um, like mechanically. Like the guy could do things with a mouse and keyboard that like you just could not believe. <laughs> like, yeah. he, like, like he was able to just spike his actions per minute to just an insane number and just make units sort of dance and maneuver in a way that you couldn't, you couldn't really conceive of until you saw it. The problem is that it come at the cost of like basically any sort of strategic grip on the game uh, mm. at all. Uh, and so once his bag, like if you could deal with his bag of tricks, um, you know, you had his number, he was done. So it made it, it made for a really cool rivalry. And so I had good casting, but I think even more important, I think what can sort of die, what can really lock you in the sport is if you find a good, uh, you know, good narrative. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and then you can buy in, and then you can use that as as a place to start following a game. But I think in esports these days, it feels harder. Uh, it feels like a lot of the mobas don't really have great narratives uh, around their players because they're so. They're they're always changing. It's it's sort mm-hmm. of hard to hard to keep up, and it's definitely hard to like stay attached uh, to a lot of teams when a lot of the marquee players are constantly getting swapped out. Um, yeah, so there it's, is it's, an aspect to this where you know uh, there, there's something very innate to you know for me watching somebody knock somebody out or 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 choke somebody out, right? Or watching an amazing, amazing baseball player hit a home run. There's something like innately cool about a physical thing happening. Like a, fi- a human body doing like an incredible thing is 
I feel like we're, we're poised, like our brains are kind of automatically interested in that sort of stuff. Maybe some of us more than others, for sure. But like, we all know, we, we can all see like, oh my God, that, that action that I can take in real life, you know, on a basic level is now heightened to this incredible degree. And it's automatically something you kind of get as a person. Whereas something that's like super, super amazing in StarCraft, I wouldn't necessarily know it right off the bat. I would need to have that little bit of context to kind of would be like, oh my God, yes, that is so amazing. That is so incredible. So well, and, and it's it's already starting at that at that level where it's a little bit abstracted from what we experience in the physical world. And something else I, I sort of knows with esports, and this is maybe more broadly applicable, I didn't really understand StarCraft until I started watching esports because mm. without the pressure of being in the moment, being in the game myself, and watching players, Frank, let, let's, let's be frank, watching people who really knew what they were doing and really yeah. used units kind of the way they were designed to be used rather than me sort of groping my way towards whatever seemed to work at that moment. <laughs> um, but those two things, sort of having that pressure taken off me so that I could just sort of watch the game work and then watching people who understood it better than I uh, sort of, you know, go about their business really allowed me to appreciate and enjoy a game that Previously, I had bounced bounced off hard, and so it's it's been kind of an interesting thing that like a lot of these games I've discovered that I vastly prefer watching them uh, to actually playing them myself. Mm -hmm. Oh, that makes yeah, that totally makes sense too. There was uh, there was the the game that I actually sort of uh, thought of this topic for is is a total one eighty from from kind of talking about this stuff, but it, but I think it's also kind of applicable to that. <laughs> in that like I'm somewhat interested in playing it for sure like I it looks really fun and really cool but I've had so much fun watching it that I don't feel like I immediately need to run out and play it and that is Hitman um which the other day this Austin and I Hitman. the new the new yeah from from last year where it's based, been kind yeah. of yeah subscription based Hitman where a new level kind of comes out every uh, so often I watched a bunch of Chris, actually Chris Remo playing it at one point. I've watched a bunch of Steve Gaynor playing it. Uh, it's it's really, really fun to watch uh, game designers play it because they, you know, it, it, I just feel like there's a, an extra level of joy there and being like, oh, what, look at what these systems are doing for sure and what this level design is doing. It was also really fun to, uh, I streamed it with Austin the other day uh, for a, way, a Waypoint stream and I just, it was maybe the most fun I've ever had on a stream. I was, we were just cackling at, at, you know, mishaps and things going wrong and him kind of refining the plan for, you know, how he was going to go about a, a certain assassination. And these were the, uh, I, I don't remember the exact term, but these are the specific missions where you have to kill a, a certain target in a certain way with certain conditions. Oh, you, know? like, oh, you have to kill him target? with a saber. Oh, no, it's yes, like more I of an achievement. So. Uh, it's sort of like a, um, I think oh, yes, elusive both, target. Right? It okay. was an elusive target. That's totally, yeah, that's totally what it was. Um, and you know, we, we got to a mission where, uh, you know, we, we, he played through it like seven times and, and got a little bit closer each time and a little bit closer each time. And there was this one moment where he was waiting for this one guy to go into the bathroom and you couldn't, uh, subdue anyone, anyone else whatsoever. You couldn't, uh, do other things to, that would you derail only kill your targets. Exactly. Okay. It would it would stop the mission. It would keep you from. Okay, from so it's playing gotta be like mission. a perfect hit. Yeah, and we we had it down to a science of who goes where at what time, and you know the wrong guy goes into the bathroom, and he killed him. And the second he pressed oh, the button, he shit. knew, he knew, and it was this moment of like, 
oh no, you know, like I knew what I did. And it just the drama of that moment and the like, the fun of kind of making a plan and crafting a plan and seeing how it goes through. And of course, when it, when it blows up, it's funny and you improvise. And uh, it was just, it was just so much fun. And I was like, I didn't even need to hold the controller at any point during this. I just had a really, really good time, like with a friend sort of watching him play this game and like guiding, you know, being like, you can do it, buddy. You know, what kind of one of those uh, moments. It was, it was really just glorious. And I think that game is, is wonderful for that uh, for many reasons. And one of them being that it's, it you know, of course, comical on, on several levels. You, you have to kill people in, you know, ridiculous ways sometimes uh, and sort of swap outfits. And, and, you know, of course, everybody's kind of an asshole in this world. And they have these conversations about all these terrible things that they're doing or whatever. And it's, you know, it's, it's just funny on that level. But then, of course, there's, there's so many ways uh, of getting in trouble. And there's so many ways of getting out of trouble that I feel like there's something to that. There's something uh, something that makes a game a really great spectator experience mm-hmm. has to do with the spontaneity of, of things, of, of, of like being able to totally screw up, but also totally get yourself out of it. We had one of those moments too, where, oh no, everybody saw him and he had to run and, you know, change his disguise in, in like a, an alleyway in a quarter of a second. And it, oh, it worked, you know, it was... Really, really awesome. Uh, that spontaneity is really awesome. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thing because I don't think that's inherent to all stealth games, but I think a particular breed of stealth game really lends itself to that. There are yeah. so many moving parts in a Hitman game that I can totally see where that's actually more fun to play with a friend sort of watching you because then you can sort of like describe, like you you can sort of talk through the problem together yeah. and watch how yeah. the watch how the uh, you know the the pieces are whirring and spinning and figuring out like how how the like how the level is functioning and how the uh, NPC behavior is working in a level. And you lay lay plans based on that. But the thing is, you have to do the same thing if you're playing by yourself, but one, it's a a little lonelier. Uh, But two, I think in a lot of cases, if you've got an audience, if you're there with a friend, (laughs) those disasters become like tragicomic, like best laid plans uh, type moments. But if you are alone... A lot of times, even if it's just as hysterically, like, you know, funny, just, you know, everything's going awry, it's, it maybe doesn't always feel as fun because you don't have someone else there to sort of keep it real, right? You don't have someone else yeah. there who's going to, like, laugh laugh it off. Instead, you just got you, who's just put 20 minutes trying to figure out how to get this clean kill, and you kill the wrong dude. Yeah. And if you're alone, you're like, oh, motherfucker, I'm going to kill so-. Like, you know, that's that's when a keyboard gets smashed or something. Like, yeah. so one of my favorite memories from... um. God, I can't remember which Hitmanic game it was. It might have just been Hitman Two. Um, it's sure. it's one of the many games where where Agent Forty Seven is trying to leave this life behind, uh, and it doesn't it doesn't <laughs> He's go well. Constantly trying to do that. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like Star Trek movies, like the, the yeah. even the even numbered ones. He's trying to escape his life of violence, and the odd yeah. numbered ones. He's like slid all the way back in. Yep. Um, but so I'm in this mission where I've got to like infiltrate this like embassy ball or something. It's very James Bond, and it's. A cold night, and I remember I was having trouble just even getting in the door because it was pretty secured. And I real I found the place where this one waiter was uh was 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 smoking his cigarette. And I apologize if I've told the story before uh, on this show. No, this is I've, I'm I've, interested. I've, yeah, I've sort of hit that point where I'm talking enough about games uh, <laughs> with with various people, and then on different podcasts that sometimes I lose track of like um 
where I've told what story. Uh, I I have this constant fear of like, oh God, I really hope I haven't used this material because I am, I am super boring. Uh, and it's, it's basically just like putting up enough of a facade every week. Uh, no, you're not, you're not that. boring. You're awesome. I yeah. totally understand. I've definitely told the same story like two or three times a time. It just, it, yeah. it's okay. It's all yeah. right. It happens. It's all right. So I find where the waiter's having a smoke break and, uh, agent 47 has chloroform. And so I, I chloroform this guy, strip him naked, leave him there in like the snow, uh, <laughs> and go and infiltrate this party as a waiter. And I'm cruising around, and I identify the target. And the target at some point in the party sort of leaves the main area and sort of goes into, like, these embassy halls or something like that, uh, where you'll definitely be noticed as the waiter, but it'll take them a second to to sort of <laughs> know that you shouldn't be yeah. there. And so you can, you can do a quick, like, uh, you know, a quick run into the same room as the target, shut the door before you notice, kill the guy, and leave. Uh, but I'm so I'm just about to follow the target like through this door, and I'm in this ballroom. And at the under other end of the ballroom is like a pair of French doors out to the veranda, and a couple like classic Secret Service like dude, uh, security guards, sunglasses, earpieces. So I'm just about to like start making a beeline uh, for the doors to um, like the the office section of the embassy when I turn and I look over to the French doors. And in walks this naked guy, looking very <laughs> agitated. And he runs up to one of the security guards, and they're talking. And then, the way it is in my memory, suddenly, like, every security guard in the room just looks at me. Oh, no. And you start getting that, you know, that, like, throbbing exclamation point, right? Like, to, that lets you know your, your cover's about to go. Uh, and, like... I totally like blow my cool. Like I, I pull out, I pull out the, the the pistols. Like shoot two guards, run through the door. All hell breaks loose. People are screaming. I'm chasing the, I'm I'm chasing this dude down. Um, I end up like punching out a maid, uh, and still like miss my target and and get cornered and gunned down. And I was furious. In in my memory, it's an awesome story because what I remember now, all I remember is that ghastly moment where I realized that chloroform wears off and the people you chloroform are smart enough to be like, I really should go tell someone about this. (laughs) And so like in my memory, that's like, that's the moment I remember. But at the time I also know for a fact I was enraged because it was like 40 minutes of reconning this place. And I was like, Oh man, I'm so clever for like figuring out that that, that dude took a smoke break there. And like, I totally had this on lockdown. Uh, and so I was just like, I was just angry. But I think if you've got someone else there, if you've got an audience or a friend, it becomes a story that, you, you know, you're living the story uh, as it happens, as opposed to just like living the event. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's really special. It's it's one of the reasons why I love streaming so much. And and honestly, if I'm getting really frustrated with a game and I still want to keep playing it, I'll stream because I'll be less frustrated. Like I, I did this all the time with The Witness just so I could just talk to people and be like, well, this sucks. Uh, how's your day? You know, and it and it when, when I actually triumphed, when I actually, you know, made things work and made things happen, then it was great. And we all got to share it together. And it was like a beautiful shared moment. It's like share my pain, share my pleasure, you know, kind of <laughs> kind of a, a wonderful thing. A beautiful, beautiful moment in my life. 
Yeah, I, I just love that stuff. I, I really like streaming for that entire reason. I really like... Uh, games have always been a shared experience for me. Like, my happiest times growing up and gaming uh, were always passing the controller. They were always playing Donkey Kong Country, of course, I know. Take a drink, uh, you know, with my best friend. And we would, we would, you know, we grew up playing those games and very much were like, we were like 10 to 13 when we were playing them all the time. And like, we, we grew up doing that. We grew up playing Mario games. We grew up, you know, past the controller. I'll beat this level. You're better at the bosses. You know, that is, to me, that is one of my happiest memories or, or one of my happiest sort of classes of memories is like sharing that with somebody that I like and enjoy and, and feel good about. And so it's yeah, it's nice like that. And even it even does work to an extent with like narrative experiences as well. Like I didn't like I got through all of Final Fantasy VIII because like my buddy and I were playing it and passing the controller back and forth because I just lost like all patience with the combat and <laughs> sure. I think you had to like do some shit with your swords. Like I want to say, like I'm not sure it was like Final <laughs> Fantasy VII like materia swapping type stuff, but man. I definitely seem to remember like an entire like sword management and crafting mini game in Final Fantasy VIII that I could just <laughs> not handle. Like, <laughs> I, th like I'd barely been there with the gun blade to start with, uh, but once they started asking me to like really think about my gun blade, like I was like, no, man, this is this is too dumb. <laughs> but it was it was really fun, sort of playing that together, and then you'd sort of hit these these major like um, you know pivotal points in the story. And then we need to take a breather. And, you know, we go downstairs and, like, you know, pour ourselves a couple, um, you know, a couple Cokes or something. And we'd be like, well, so what do you think? Like, you know, do you agree uh, with yeah. how with how Squall handled that? Like, you're getting a weird vibe about, like, you know, the whole, um, you know, like, what this what the school is all about. That, that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And it was, it was really fun. It was a hell of a lot more fun doing that than, like, playing Final Fantasy X by myself. Sure. Uh, when I was realizing, like, oh man, this is way less fun if you don't have someone else around you who's really into it, because then you can't sort of feed off their excitement. Instead, all you can do is stare just in like shocked horror at how <laughs> disastrously boring uh, and uh, completely lacking in chemistry uh, Titus and Yuna uh, were. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Man, talk about the, the a game length cold shower. God. <laughs> and a long RPG game too for that matter. Yeah, god damn. <laughs> damn. I was going to say the last thing I wanted to mention uh in this topic because it seems pretty relevant. Uh we just had awesome games done quick and I really do just as a general category in life really do love speedrunning even though I know there's 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 always tension now around uh games done quick. There's always, you know, some controversy, somebody says something shitty, that kind of thing and that that's always a bummer, but I just want to I want to shout out the the practice of speedrunning and uh, the the entire community of people who who like it's it's their sport, it's their hobby. They they have figured out like things about these games that are just kind of amazing and arcane and it looks like magic and I I very much enjoy uh, watching. There's a lot of games I'll never play. Probably. Now, I'm not saying this like, oh, I've never touched a controller for this. It's it's more like weird games or, or a lot of older games that I just probably don't have time to play. But yeah. There's a lot of games I'm probably never going to play that I have gotten to enjoy because of speedruns, because of something like uh, AGDQ or Summer Games Done Quick. Uh, thinking of a lot of like 
you know, really bizarre old uh, NES games or games that never came out here. They came out in Europe or Japan um, that I'm just like, wow, this is this is fascinating to watch. I know this is like not the experience that most people probably had with this game because they're glitching somewhere and they're, you know, doing things differently. But hey, this is a way for me to to get this experience and kind of enjoy it with somebody else. So that's my that's my piece. I love watching games. I sure do. I uh, <laughs> I have a lot of fun in the in the right contexts. I, uh, I really do enjoy games as a spectator sport as much as a participatory sport. Um, and so I think unless there's there's other things you want to say about about watching watching games, it's probably a good time for us to handle our weekend correspondence. First, word from our sponsor. Hey, Danielle. I think we need to talk about how much you've been letting yourself go since the inauguration. Rob, I'm processing this in my own way. And for me, that means vodka spinach smoothies, mountains of unattended cat poop, and never brushing my teeth. Hey now, I'm not trying to get between you and your feelings. But you gotta take care of your teeth, Danielle. Especially in this age of increasingly uncertain healthcare costs. In fact, what if I told you that proper dental care is a radical act of defiance that you can perform at home twice every day? What? Is that really true? In a post-truth world, Danielle, it's as true as we both want it to be. And even better, taking care of your teeth has never been easier or more convenient thanks to Quip. Quip provides thoughtfully designed tools to help you care for your teeth, based on sound advice from dentists, rather than needless innovation that does more harm than good. And you can get a head start on saving for the coming recession if you visit tryquip.com weekend to get $10 off your first refill. Whoa, are you saying I can stick it to the man and dig in for the next four years if I sign up at tryquip.com slash weekend for $10 rather off my first order? If that's what you heard, Danielle, then that's exactly what I said. You can buy one of their simple, straightforward electric toothbrushes, and if you subscribe to a refill plan at tryquip.com slash weekend, they'll send you a replacement head every three months for $5. That's amazing. I can't wait to start taking direct action on my teeth and gums with Quip. Alrighty, weekend correspondence. We've got some great letters here. Uh, the first one comes from Luke. Luke writes, Recently, I've been noticing that I'm falling prey to feedback addiction. I have a huge backlog of games. I want to see that number get smaller to the point where I stop playing games I like just to finish games I don't. How do you guys... Uh, turn off the need to check things off every once in a while so you can enjoy something without thinking about all the games you should be playing. Keep podding the casts, Luke. I think last week's show yeah. proved that we kind of <laughs> fail miserably. We're bad uh, at, at it. that, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, long story short, play The Witcher. I think that's what we, uh, <laughs> that's yeah. what we came down to you, last you consider week. playing The Witcher. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's... So I had a friend uh, in college whose mom was a librarian. Sure. And one day he comes over to my house and I'm hanging out there and I'm 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 grinding through some awful book. Uh, I think <laughs> it was The Emperor's Children, uh, which is just your quintessential, just loathsome work of adult <laughs> literature. Um, just just a a festival of douchebags. Um, <laughs> You know, all fucking miserable and all just like obsessed with the mundanity uh, and selfishness of their lives. Uh, so again, like serious novel. Uh, yeah. Yep. And <laughs> I'm slogging through this thing. And I'm like, man, like, I fucking hate this book, but like got great reviews. And he just looked at me and he's like, 
Okay. I'd grown up like in libraries my whole life. There is literally an unlimited number of good books out there. Mm-hmm. And life is way too short for you to feel like you got to finish ones. If you're going to be a serious reader, you have to know wh- when to call it quits and like put a book down. You need to know where the eject button is. You know? Yeah. And <laughs> I, I think about that because fundamentally I still haven't found uh, the eject book button. I still, I still slog through books I don't enjoy. I still finish games that I'm not really enjoying while I sort of put off uh, you know, the, the game I, I do want to play. Uh, and and I, so I really think, like, you know, I, I'm not sure it's, I think it might just be sometimes you're, you're, you're either one of those people who's learned that skill to just sort of, like, think, I'm not enjoying this, therefore I will go do something else. <laughs> or you're someone who somehow feels, like, obligated to get through the experience you don't like because only then can you be released from the obligation of going through it. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really hard. I, I have that feeling and I have those feelings of guilt, but I, you know, I just I can't with my life right now. I cannot waste my time. I, I don't even finish half of the games that I love and that I really, really enjoy. Uh, so it's kind of like I, I guess that takes some of the pressure. Off. Well, we talked about this last week, but yeah. it does take some of the pressure off that it's like I just can't. It's, I'm, it's not possible for me to finish all the things that I start. It's not going to happen. So you know what? Play The Witcher. <laughs> You know, something um I, I, I think just something I return to a lot is like a couple years ago I was on Gamers with Jobs and I was talking to uh Sean Sands, who's been in a number of uh Three Moves Ahead episodes yeah. uh with yeah. us. But uh we sort of determined that he was the game king. Uh because he had this <laughs> amazing uh almost like goldfish like ability to just completely forget the thing that was not amusing him at a given time. And just play exactly what he wanted to play. And he never had a doubt about what he wanted to play. And that's the that was the part that like blew my mind. I'm sitting there like Sean's a really matter of fact, like Midwestern dude. Yeah. Um, like not prone to like navel gazing. It was just sort of taken for granted that like he was he, like I'm describing this dilemma and he literally at the end of it, he's like, I have no idea what the hell you are talking about. Like you just play your game, man. That's all you do. And I was like, what? How do you, like, what? So, yeah, it's, um, it's, it, it's a real trick. I, I think. God, I'm so jealous. Oh, God. I, but look, real, real talk. I have gone back and listened to that episode probably two or three times a year since we recorded it. Because, like, I keep thinking that this time I'm going to get it. This time, like, I'm going to understand, like, the, the like, the truth behind the words. Uh, and, and I keep I keep bouncing off it, but but maybe I'll, I'll I'll get there someday. I think I think the main thing is a lot of times you know what you actually want to be playing in a given day. Yeah. Do not question that. Play that game. Like you'll come back to the like if you really want to play a game, you'll come back to it and you'll continue with it. Don't delete it or like hold on to your saves. But like if you're really into it, you'll come back to it. But what will put you off of it is continuing to force yourself to, like, eat it like, you know, really mushy Brussels sprouts. That's not good for yeah. anyone. Just just go for the thing you get a hankering for. Goddamn right. All right. So this is from Anonymous in the Pacific Northwest. I just turned 33. Great age. 
and I'll be I there in that, a couple weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and I've noticed that the older I got, the less I like to interact with game mechanics. Many of my favorite games of late are those which focus on the human aspect within gaming, the storytelling, character development, emotional attachments, etc. Games like the first season of The Walking Dead, Journey, Life is Strange, Gone Home. So much so that I find any other type of game I'm intrigued by gets pushed off to my favorite personalities on Twitch or YouTube. Is this something either of you have had happen in your life? Are there aspects in games that are much more appealing to you now than, say, five or ten years ago? Also, have either of you tried Lady Killer in a Bind? It's completely outside of what I'm normally interested in. However, after seeing it get praised on Twitter and realizing it was a visual novel-type game, I decided to give it a shot. I played through twice and found that there's some pretty funny dialogue. The characters and choices are interesting and varied enough. And, well, who can say no to non-heteronormative consensual sex in a game? <laughs> I'd really be interested to hear either of your thoughts on it if you've had a chance to play it. Uh, regardless, are there any other visual novels you would recommend? A lot of good questions in there. Uh, Christine Love is a, is a friend of mine, so I've, I've, I know a lot of things about Lady Killer and a Bind, but I've still, I still, I am ashamed to say I have not played it yet, even though it is, it is right up my alley, so to speak. I, I know I'm going to absolutely love it. I, it's one of those things where it's like, I just need to take an afternoon or an evening, or whatever, and just sit, goddamn sit down and play it. That is, it's one of those on my list of like, goddamn sit down and play it. Not just, oh, I want to play it one day. Uh, it's, it's right up there. And I also, I definitely sympathize uh, with these feelings of being like, I'm, I'm more interested in story, I'm more interested in, in sort of exploration or, or that kind of thing than super mechanics heavy games. I, I It always depends on my mood, uh, for sure. But, uh, you know, there are times where I really, really just want one or the other. Uh, for sure. And that's one of the reasons why even the ocean was so great, because it kind of let you, you could literally just play the story or just play the uh, sort of puzzle platforming, or you could play all of it and you could kind of do all of it. I it was like that in a game when uh, things are done well in both, uh, both aspects. I wouldn't say that I am no longer uh, sort of mechanics driven or, or interested in games that are primarily a mechanical experience, because I had a couple of games last year that were uh, just my a couple of my favorite favorite experiences of all of last year were very mechanics driven. You know, Dishonored Two and uh, Rise of the Tomb Raider, two of my favorite games. And I, you know, I was interested. I think you literally just forgot about Dark Souls, by the way. Oh God, Dark Souls. Uh, <laughs> Which I think well, renews you know, the mechanics credit. Like your your life. Basically, it's like qualifying for for your pilot's license again, and like your 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 current up through like twenty twenty one or something. <laughs> pretty much, right? Yeah, I played like sixty something hours of that. Um, yeah, so it's not like, you know, there are times I'm just like, I just want a damn story and I want something that's light and, and about a story and times where I'm like, I want to dive in and, and really have fun with platforming and, and abilities and, and things like that for sure. But I understand like just generally getting older and having less time for bullshit, uh, which I think is very much, uh, something that I, I'm feeling pretty hard at this point. Uh, and, and, you know, games that are sort of tightly designed, experience there's there's kind of no filler uh that's that's more where i'm i'm kind of going uh at this point i i just i used to really enjoy uh you know i wasn't like a jrpg you know fanatic by any means but i used to i used to really like a good you know jrpg every now and then and now i'm kind of like uh -uh. unless it's like pokemon which is very much a very light version of that and also has a lot of other stuff kind of going on now i'm just like look man if you're an 80 hour game, it's just not going to happen unless you are the Witcher. And there's only, there's only room for one Witcher in my life. 
I've only got room for one Geralt. I can have plenty of other partners and other <laughs> things, but there's only one Geralt. You know what I'm saying? So I think that's more sort of how I've changed over the years is is being more like I just I just can't deal with with things that are are have filler in them basically yeah. or too much filler. I think for me, like you know, one of my favorite game experiences of last year was uh, Telltale Batman. Why oh, is yeah. that? Um, well, it certainly it certainly wasn't because of its optimization on PS4. I'll tell you that much right <laughs> right the fuck now. Yeah. Uh, like, it, it, always love a game that tells you when it's time to quit for the day uh, by by crashing hard. Uh, but what I liked about it was that it was something I could play in the morning while I ate breakfast or while I made breakfast, and lent itself to sort of that like you know you just sort of sit there you press a button. Uh, every few, you know, every few minutes, or you know, yeah. you make a little decision, but like, you don't have to be actively engaged with it. You can enjoy your coffee and uh, you know, eat your food and just sort of like chill and get ready for the day while you while you play this game. And that was totally up my alley. And yeah, it was, part of it was like I enjoyed the story and how it was being told, but as much a part of it was, it just kind of agreed with what I needed out of a game during the week or so where I was I was playing it. And I think it's it's frustrating. To me, that I think a lot of game, like a lot of like skill intensive or mechanically intensive games, still fundamentally depend on you learning via failure or learning via struggle uh, at the sure. at the very least. Definitely and, Dark Souls, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and when you're short on time or short on mental energy or short on both, um, stuff you would normally love, stuff you would have loved, you know, five or ten years ago. Uh, suddenly just starts to leave you utterly cold. Uh, and I totally feel it happening. Like, I used to play every Total War game on, like, max difficulty. Mm. In the last few years, <laughs> that difficulty slider started, like, creeping further and further left. And, like, I don't know what's changed, but sure. I know I've I've lost something. And I want it back, but at the same time, getting it back requires a hell of a lot more time and energy than I really have, so... You know, you let it go and you fire up a Telltale game, uh, and that's that's kind of where where I'm at with with that kind of stuff. Regarding Lady Lady Killer Bind, uh, looks cool. Super curious about it. Um, weird thing, I tend not to be super comfortable. And I haven't played Lady Killer Bind, and like mm. everything's consensual, awesome. Uh, it, Amanda Cosmos talked it up to me, and I, I generally <laughs> trust her up to a point. Uh, <laughs> To a point. Up to a point. Yep. (laughs) Um, I hear you. Yeah. I get kind of weirded out by the archetype of sort of... I don't know. What's the way to put this? Because it's a a stock anime character. It's not quite the ingenue. Is it like a kink, like like madam kind of thing? No, it's, it's more like... The young, yeah, the ingenue, yes, yeah, the, the ingenue who's being put in like hyper sexualized situations, and it's like deeply uncomfortable, and it's kind of played for laughs. But there's always kind of a weird air of like sexual menace in those relationships that I find kind of creepy. And Lady sure. Killer Bind, may, like maybe it doesn't work that way, but like it totally pushes those buttons. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the thing that put me off it for life is, um. Revolutionary Girl Utena. I see. Which I see. Yeah. totally plays with those tropes 
Except the punchline is, in sort of the, the final third of the show, you realize that everything absolutely was about um, sexual politics and, expo- and uh, exploitation and even rape. And so a lot of those vibes you got, you were absolutely right to have been like quietly freaked out and creeped out by them. Mm-hmm. Except Utena is kind of unusual in that it's actually like it's playing with tropes, but at the same time uh, using them to make much deeper, darker, uh, more troubling points. But that's kind of stuck with me is that is that stuff really harmless? And sure. I sort of stumble stumble over that. And I suspect that might be a stumbling point for me in a lot of uh, visual novels. But you know what? That's probably me reading too much into an art style and some cover art. And not having played nearly enough of Christine Love's games. Yeah, she's, uh, like I said, she's a, she's a friend, so it's always one of those take it with a grain of salt things. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very interested in other types of sexuality being shown in games in, in a, you know, consensual and, and relatively, you know, positive light, realistic light, sort of in general. I, I'm interested in games sort of addressing kink. I think that's really rad and really cool. And I, I haven't played it yet either. So I, that's, yeah. yeah, I totally get it. And I, and I get that. I get that that trope is, is super uncomfortable at times for sure. Like that's, that's not a, you know, not whatsoever a dismissal of that. That's, that's yeah. real. <laughs> I get, I get that. Uh, um, up my alley, I will say it was the Starcraft two visual novel. Um, oh, nice. Really I didn't even cool. know there was one. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you want an, a primer to Starcraft esports and, uh, why people get sort of obsessed with it, uh, play that game. It's like, it's it's sort of a uh, underdog trying to make good and being coached by some of the best. And you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Pete Sampras, what are you doing here? Uh, kind <laughs> kind of thing. I um, love that shit. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's kind of like that, but at the same time, I, I think something I really admire about it is that it's also like, you know, three ways of looking at a competitive game. Uh, you know, three different ethoses that major characters take with them and used to approach the game and what it says about them and sort of the toll it takes to commit to a pursuit to the point where you become identified with it. Uh, so yeah, that's my endorsement for uh, a visual novel. That's pretty rad. I'm going to, I'm going to try that out. I, I like visual novels. I like the idea of them. I haven't played enough to kind of know all of it, but it, it's uh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into more of those. I think as, as life goes on. Uh, So we have our final letter today is from David T. in California. Uh, David writes, hey, DNR. Actually says, hello, DNR, not hey. (laughs) Hello, DNR. I found the discussion of frustrations in games super interesting. My question is this. As a podcast on the Idle Thumbs Network, how could you mention games that deliberately frustrate players, uh, the players intentionally and not bring up Far Cry 2? Will you still be allowed on the Idle Thumbs Network after this gaffe? Stay rad. David T. from California. The sad truth of the matter is that I, I've still not played Far Cry 2. I know. I know it's it's legacy. I know that it is the Witcher 3 of the Idle Thumbs podcast proper. I know. I know it's a it's a beloved, beloved title. It's also beloved by Austin, who I work with at Waypoint. He, he loves it, too. So it's like all these people in my life who, who really, really love this very frustrating game. I uh, think it says a lot of interesting things. Uh, with mechanics uh, and systems, but I, I just still haven't played, and that's why that's why yeah. I didn't bring it up. <laughs> so I'll say this about Far Cry Two: I never understood why people found it that frustrating. Um, mm. Like, 
the thing that gets referred to a lot is the uh, the malaria, but it's really not that hard to manage unless <laughs> there are points where you're absolutely not supposed to be able to manage it. Uh, mm. So it, it became like a bit of a hassle, but I never like had any real like maybe once or twice I had it like an attack crop up at a really bad moment. But for the most part, um, for me, that game just became more and more about me becoming a better and better like jungle and desert warrior. Um, mm. yeah. God, what a ridiculous game. Like, <laughs> yeah. So like, I think at the frustration for me, that game was, was super, super uh, em- empowering. Um, and I think maybe I found it that way in part because maybe I ruined it a little bit for myself. Like I also didn't have as many crazy grenade roll down the hill uh, type experiences in that game or like moments where I get caught in a field that I've set on fire and, uh, you know, end up like dying from dying in a blaze of my own making. But for me, most of that game was um, basically going full predator in a jungle or like, you know, <laughs> racing a Jeep across a desert, pulling a bootleg turn, hopping out while the car is still in motion with a sniper rifle, like wiping out all my pursuers and then like driving off into like the desert sun. That's, that's my far cry too. Nice. That's my far cry too. I like that quite a bit. So, uh, that was your far cry too, but what is your weekend project, Rob? Oh, I'm that, making a, a pivot. That is a segue. That's a segue, I'm, right? I am I'm happy with that. I was riding on a segue on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. I have two options. Let's go with Neptune's Inferno. Oh. Uh, by, uh, I think, Mark Hornfisher. Um, but it is a history of the U.S. Navy campaign off, uh, off Guadalcanal. Okay. And what's interesting, what I'm finding really interesting about it well, there's a lot of things. Okay, so the way the Pacific War is is often told is once the Japanese carriers are sunk at Midway, it's kind of a foregone conclusion. Like, which is really weird because Midway happens in, fairly early in, in 1942. There's a hell of a lot of war uh, between 1942 oh, yeah. and, and, and sort of the surrender of Japan. And yet there's kind of a sense that because carriers were so invaluable and irreplaceable, especially for the Japanese... That once that battle was fought and lost, uh, it was kind of, the Japanese Navy was, was kind of doomed. And maybe that's true. But there was still a lot of war left to fight. And Neptune's Inferno is about a campaign that sort of follows not that long after uh, Midway, which is uh, the, the, in, the capture of Guadalcanal, which is largely remembered for the marine action on, on, <laughs> on the island. But... Neptune's Inferno is all about sort of the series of really vicious uh, surface engagements between light ships in the U.S. Navy and Imperial Japanese Navy. And it's kind of, it's kind of a campaign where, you know, far from being beaten, the Japanese Navy shows, like, why for a long time they were maybe, you know, the best or second best Navy in the world and how much catching up the U.S. Navy had to do over the course of this one really hard-fought uh, campaign. And there's there's a lot of things I, I really enjoy about it. Um, one is that it's a really interesting study in leadership and management uh, to an extent because there's so many different agendas at work around this campaign and so many 
battles for turf and visions for like what should actually be prioritized in this campaign. Uh, that you've got a lot of senior commanders kind of working at like against each other, uh, which contributes to some of the difficulties uh, that that the uh, sailors face in, in, in combat. But the other thing that is just really compelling is the battles described are just utterly terrifying. Um, yeah. It's you know I just finished the section on the on the first battle of uh, of Savo or, or Savo Island where. The Japanese fleet sort of sneaks up on the American ships guarding uh, the the approach to Guadalcanal by night, and the American ships don't really have any idea the Japanese are coming, and they also just haven't learned what happens to a ship in in surface combat in World War II. Uh, And what I mean by that is (laughs) they haven't figured out that you need to get rid of your float planes uh, if you think there's going to be combat, because otherwise you've got a bunch of aviation fuel sitting oh at yeah. loose on your deck. Uh, <laughs> so basically, when the space of a couple minutes, the American fleet is just effectively destroyed. Um, like within a few shots, all the ships are burning. Um, the aviation fuel is burning so hot that it is igniting paint uh, inside the ships. God. Uh, and so it, what's what's described is just utterly Hellish. nightmarish. <laughs> Um, yeah. and just reading it, like, makes you feel utterly claustrophobic. The other thing, though, is you start to realize what incredible machines these World War II service combat ships were. That, like, literally, they could be burning from stem to stern and just getting riddled with, like, really massive um, artillery, artillery shots and somehow would still be able to fight back. And for the guys inside these ships, you know, within a few minutes, there's smoke everywhere. You can't hear. Literally, it's just deafening with the sound of the guns or the impacts from incoming shells. Um, things are just starting to break down around you. Like, walls are blown out. Uh, electronics start failing. And yet, somehow, like, these ships and the people fighting aboard them are so resilient that they're they're able to keep going. And so, it's really... You know, it's it's just an incredibly vivid portrayal of a type of combat that really only existed for about thirty years, mm. uh, thirty or forty mm. years, and then was gone and would never never happen again. Uh, and it's it, it's it's really something to read. So both as just a study on uh, the U.S. Navy's efforts in the Pacific and the way strategy unfolded there. But also is just a story of combat that that doesn't get told often enough. Um, yeah, Neptune, Neptune's Inferno by uh, Mark Hornfisher is, is is really something. God, that's awesome! I uh, adding it to the list. That's a sounds really rad. I, I've become more interested in sort of maritime traditions and naval battles in the last couple of years as I've uh, started becoming my dad. So. By the way, I have literally failed to identify the author correctly once on the show. James Hornfisher. Not James Mark, not Mike, James. <laughs> not Richard. Nope, not James. Dave. James. Okay. Yeah. James. All right. Thanks. Thank you, James Hornfisher. Uh, so my pick uh, takes place in an era just about 20 years later. Uh, I, I am going to endorse Hidden Figures today, the, the movie. Uh, which right. is based hidden, on hidden a book. fences sounded great. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hidden, hidden faces. Yeah, it's yeah, really got it. <laughs> 
Hidden Figures is a, a movie about, it's it's pretty popular. It came out on Christmas, I think, actually, last uh, last month. Um, it's a movie about these three women who, brilliant, brilliant women, uh, three African-American women in the segregated uh, Virginia landscape, uh, working out of Langley, I think, actually. Uh, yeah, the Langley Research Center during the early days of NASA, during the days of the Mercury 7, the first sort of manned space flight uh, in America, so uh, late 50s, early 60s. And it's it's the story of Catherine G. Johnson. Uh, it's, you know, true to life, real story. I started, of course, looking into these uh, real life people sort of after uh, watching this movie because I was like, this can't be, this is... Like, holy shit, these women were amazing. I almost thought it was like, oh, was this, you know, a portrayal that was, like, dramatized in a lot of ways to kind of show, you know, just how how tough they had to fight. And it was like, no. It's so right on. This. It feels like pa- pandering. Yeah, almost, yeah. almost. But apparently they really did the things portrayed in the movie, which just knocked me on my ass. It's just incredible. So Catherine G. Johnson is, is sort of the star of the show. Uh, she's played by Taraji P. Henson. And uh, just, just so, so brilliant, you know, like born, you know, uh, as, a, as a poor African-American woman in, in, you know, basically utter Jim Crow era, uh, you know, went to college when she was 16 or something, and, you know, mathematician, uh, such a brilliant, brilliant woman. And she was stuck in this sort of uh, segregated computers area, which was, you know, computers in the very, very early 60s often meant uh, a person who does computing. It didn't necessarily mean, you know, uh, what we think of as computer. Uh, she and her two friends... I'm going to try to get all their names right. Uh, Octavia Spencer plays Dorothy Vaughn, another one of these uh, these women, uh, brilliant, you know, college-educated, mathematics-oriented women. And Janelle Monet, actually, uh, amazing musician, really, Wait, really what? rad person. She is Mary Jackson, who ended up becoming the very first uh, woman African-American uh, engineer at NASA uh, who had to go to court just to petition the court to be able to take courses at a whites only school so that she could apply to be an aeronautical engineer, which is like crazy. Uh, There's just so many moments in this movie about how brilliant these women are, how hard they had to fight, uh, you know, to, to do their jobs, you know? Uh, So the the main person sort of Catherine Johnson was to, you know, Oh, assigned to the, to the department that does trajectories that actually sort of calculated the math of, mm-hmm. of, you know, how high you needed to go, how fast you needed to go, that sort of stuff. Um, and there was no, you know, colored woman's bathroom as, as they called it anywhere near that department. So she had to like run over half a mile to use the nearest bathroom for her. Uh, nobody would drink coffee with her. And of course she's, she's the most brilliant person in the room and ended up actually calculating the trajectory for the, the very first manned, um, I think it was it was one of the very first manned missions, and mm. John Glenn apparently and apparently this was real. Uh, this is the part that I like couldn't believe. John Glenn specifically asked for her to check the numbers before his orbital flight, and she in real life she actually really did. She was he was that uh, you know impressed with her and her abilities. So this is just really really incredible, kind of a feel good movie. That's like you know what. Fuck you, segregation. Fuck you, racism. Fuck you. These women are incredible. They were talented. They were brilliant. They were hardworking. And they they did this work. They did this incredible work uh, for the space program, uh, you know, under incredible duress. And, and so it really, especially now, especially with what's fucking going on politically now, it really, it really feels very appropriate to uh, watch and enjoy a movie like this. 
um, you know, we're, we're recording this on inauguration day, so this is extra, extra special. What strike me, what strikes me so much, I'm actually teaching a film class right now at uh, Berkeley, and uh, I'm using Apollo 13 uh, as as one of the films that we look at very, very early on for like you know, sort of classical Hollywood film narrative stuff. Yeah. And it, it strikes me how much this movie is so much like Apollo 13, only it's like, oh, but real life fucking problems also. Like these aren't three white men who have, you know, uh, who are just trying to come back home on a doomed mission. This is like three women at NASA who are, are working so hard and they're they're doing this incredible work. They're doing this amazing work. But also they're dealing with segregation and they're dealing with incredible, horrible racism as well. So it's almost like, almost a little more impressive than than uh you know sort of surviving a doomed mission it's it's like they the odds are stacked against them and they and they still goddamn did it so yeah i'm really really impressed with that movie it definitely you know the kind of movie it's a little broad it's it's broad in the same way apollo 13 is broad where it's like hey we're gonna fight this shit and we're gonna we're gonna make it you know it's definitely like a feel-good kind of movie for sure uh but it does so without you know in any way yeah, lessening the impact of, of, you know, the legacy of these women and sort of what they did. And it's also funny and fun, you know, for especially for a movie that's like very much, you know, taking a stance, of course, uh, and telling like a, a feel-good historic story. It, it's actually pretty funny. Like Janelle Monet is like this firecracker in the movie. You know, she's, she's just funny and she's like sort of the younger engineer who's brilliant, but also is like, whatever, I'm going to say what I need to say kind of thing. So it's uh, highly recommended. I think it's uh it's pretty pretty good and pretty pretty needed right now. I would say a, a movie of this kind. So yeah, all like right. With well, that sounds, sounds great. <laughs> yeah, you should you should watch it. <laughs> That's my recommendation. Uh, so yeah, I think with that on that on that high note on that literal high note, I guess NASA, you like my jokes. Uh, it's time for us <laughs> to head out <laughs> and enjoy our weekends. Uh, this episode of Idle Weekend is produced by yours truly. It is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And we sure appreciate you listening to our words and our, you know, our musings on games and pop culture and so on and so forth. And if you do enjoy the show, we ask that you please do take a moment to rate us on iTunes. Helps us out so much. And tell someone, tell a friend, tell your buddy that you meet at a protest this weekend <laughs> about Idle Weekend. Anybody, friends, family, whomever, uh, tell that, your dog. That, that friend you just met as as you clocked Richard Spencer, for instance. Yes, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, tell, tell that friend. <laughs> tell, your, tell your friend that you punch Nazis with all about Idle Weekend. It helps us out so, so much. We really do appreciate it. And please, friends, be safe and fight the good fight. That's just that's just me telling you to uh, get out there if you can, support those who do, and uh, be careful and be safe and be good. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo, wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Mm-hmm.